Hello, and welcome to another Sports Next Door podcast. My name is Owen. Today is Sunday, January 23rd, and I'm joined, as I always am, by my neighbor, Max. How's it going, my friend? Uh, As I told you moments before we went live, spent the day with my friend going through the really enjoyable social ritual known as making edibles. There's a lot of things that go into it. The grocery shopping, which you kind of have to have an idea of the recipe, the decarboxylating, um, take notes if you're interested in doing this well, the weighting of the extraction of the THC into a fat, then the baking of said fat into some sort of delicious good, and then the waiting for that to bake, and then the eating, and then the waiting for that to hit, and then the fun part. We're currently in the second last stage of said chain of events, and uh, might make for an interesting pod. I'm not sure. How's your Sunday been? Uh, Definitely less entertaining. Um, I spent 90% of it on the couch, had a bit of a headache today. So just trying to stay in there. Also had a nap for the first time in a couple of months. It's been a while since I've had a nap. So did one of those feeling better now and, and feeling ready to go for the pod. Um, Yeah. Should be, should be an interesting one and lots to talk about for sure. Uh, Tennis, obviously a big win for one of our Canadian boys and then uh, some football that, the games have lived out up to their expectations so far this weekend. And of course, Buffalo, Kansas City just getting underway at the time of this podcast. Um, a big combat corner, a result of the fight there on Saturday, and then a little bit of basketball to wrap things up. So not necessarily our, our normal sports content in the pod, but uh, definitely some awesome stuff nonetheless. So Max, I will let you kick it off with the Australian Open. Yeah throwback with the tennis talk we have a good amount of it kind of the same way you were saying last week you hit uh, the divisional weekend is a critical mass of football where you still have enough teams in the tournament that there is still kind of football all the time all weekend while also the quality has been slowly raised as the bottom performers get taken out by the top ones until it's really only players who have played excellently that's kind of the fourth and quarterfinals I'd say we just finished the fourth round last night in the top half of the draw the bottom half getting into it tonight I believe the Australian time zone things throwing me off a little and I guess Monday's kind of an off day the way everything's different by half a day is messing up my grand slam calendar but a lot of really entertaining results to talk about in that critical mass of tennis. And we're just going to go through it top to bottom. So standing at the top of the draw in one of the quarterfinal bids is Gay, Gay Monfi, uh, one of the most entertaining tennis players out there, the simple man who prefers his life drama-freeze version of Nick Kyrgios. Um, a bit past his prime in age and in a part of the draw that was supposed to be Novak Djokovic's to lose without said lion in presence. Um, I should have Googled this name, but Kekmanovic, the Czech who was in the draw 
starting block of the first round Djokovic was supposed to be in. I'm not sure if he was the player Djokovic was supposed to face or the player who got put in very last minute. Either way, he made the most of it going all the way to the fourth round. So a great uh, run for Kmanovic, the unseated player. But Monfi ends it in the fourth, who's had an even better and he's waiting to face Matteo Berrettini in that first quarterfinal. Berrettini, in what I called the most hyped, best match of the third round, took out the young stud Carlos Alcaraz in a tight five-setter back and forth. The experience of Berrettini showing, closing out late after a rough start to that one, um, gets him some momentum to get through Pablo Carreno Busta in three, so that's our first quarterfinal, Monfi versus Berrettini. Definite edge to Berrettini. Just the hard serve has been pretty steady, constant for him. Uh, Monfi is really going to have to raise the level of play. But maybe the wily old veteran has a couple of tricks young Matteo hasn't seen before. He'll be able to plant the seeds of doubt early and get the win. What a storyline that would be. Uh, Monfi in the semifinals for the first time since I don't know. We, we, I want to interject here because we were discussing prior to this, uh, the possibility of us jumping on a color cast, um, as well as recording the podcast so we could talk pod and also be watching the Bills Chiefs game. So I guess I might jump in here with some updates, but Devin Singletary, fourth and goal, gets the uh, toss from Allen, and it's a seven nothing ball game for Buffalo. Oh, wow, love that up. Yeah, we'll just be calling the score through the first half as that game goes on. Uh, as Owen opened his mouth to speak there, I thought he was maybe a closeted Monfi fan. Uh, looking, <laughs> He is excited. a fun guy. He is a fun guy. He's he, always entertaining his matches. Yeah, but even more entertaining for us, Denis Shapovalov, the young Canadian with the biggest upset of the tournament. Um, we'll wind the clock back one round first in the third round he took on Riley Opelka who I thought was going to be a really tough matchup for him with a big serve he did a fantastic job neutralizing that first serve of, of Opelka who managed to get a fair few of them in but just 70 percent on the match of his first serve resulted in points this is a guy who usually sits in that 80 90 range and all the sets of the three sets of the four Shapo won uh, it was below 70 in the 60s for Opelka so a great job neutralizing that serve but then the big storyline Denis Shapovalov taking out Alex Zverev uh, more on UFC later in this pod but at about 130 140 I wrapped up my night watching UFC just decided to check in on the draw and saw Shapo up one set and at like a 6-5 score I want to say in the second set tiebreak, meaning he was one point away from winning the second set. Who needs sleep, right? So had to throw that on. I caught the end of that second set that saw Zverev uh, make an unforced error on the play, giving Chapo that two set lead, putting him one away from the match and watched him start, I think, he won 6-3, so he served first. And then Zverev didn't play a great first service game after Chapo took his pretty easily. Uh, a double fault in there, an unforced error, gave Chapo enough room to take advantage of a second serve and eke out a serve on the first point uh, to get ahead with the break early. 
and it was such tense viewing the rest of the way through chapeau has the match in hand he just has to close out his service games uh, Zverev collected himself well enough on his own serve but wasn't able to even force a deuce against Chapo. Uh, a couple scary moments where a double fault and an unforced error put Chapo down and a couple down times being down I, I think 15 to 30 never 30 never love 30 but he always came up with an ace in that third set when he needed it and uh, no pressure really through the last two games, had a chance to break again in enforcing a deuce on Zverev getting out of it with, I think also Zverev saving two break points in that game, but all the pressure coming on Zverev served none of it on Chapo's. Definitely overall a game where Zverev got into his own head early. You saw him break his own racket in the first 45 minutes of that game. And that was there in the second set with the unforced error to lose it. It was there in the third set with the double faults. Uh, his second serve averaging like just around 146 kilometers an hour showing how, and it really showed in the stats as well. I think the first set he was 0 for 4 on points on his second serve and he never got above 40% throughout the rest of the match. So in his own head there, but raw numbers the double faults the unforced errors weren't particularly or significantly higher than Chapo's they were around the same there so it really was just timing of points Zverev not at his best when he needed to be on uh, dropping a break and Chapo playing well enough to take advantage of it even though he didn't have a great second serve they both had uh, bad service in the second set I think they broke each other twice, but even when Chapo wasn't playing as best, he was able to stay at water or tread above. And that mental toughness is what got him the win here against Zverev, a player who has struggled with that fairly consistently, but is just such a gifted tennis player that he never seems to be down for long. I expect that to be the case here and he'll look just as good in the French when we get there. Uh, we'll see how much tennis he wants to play in between now and then. It's really the big moments You uh, against Djokovic in the U.S. Open. Against Felix, he played a really poor game at Wimbledon, resulting in a third or fourth round. I think that was a full five-setter where Zverev could have taken it, but just the double faults, the unforced errors again. So something he has to figure out, but you can only really improve on clutchness in big moments against top seeded players in grand slams by repetition uh, so not sure how much um, the 500s will help he's still at that level where he's playing plenty of masters tournaments i imagine so for chapo through zverev uh, the biggest upset of the tournament the highest seed in his half of the draw but rafael nadal still waits Last time I mentioned Nadal hadn't dropped a set yet. He does against Kashanov, the Russian, a really tough player. I remember Shapo having some trouble with him at Wimbledon, um, but momentum after that. Uh, but the rest of the match, excuse me, he took his sets pretty dominantly, 6-3, 6-2, and 6-3, I think. This is noted dark horse, Rafael Nadal. I... <laughs> The more he keeps on winning so easily, the stupider that sounds, I know. 
it, it makes sense in the context of the first part we did on the Australian. Oh, if we also if, have, oh, oh go sorry. Ahead. No, please. We also have noted dark horse Marin Chilich. Is that is that what I'm reading here? Upsetting yeah. uh, Rublev. Yeah. I feel like didn't Chilich make a final of the U.S. Open two years ago? Maybe, but uh, he wasn't supposed to be Rublev. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Um, Any, anyway, we're going in top to bottom on the draw here, bud. <laughs> I'm getting ahead of myself. Yes, Nadal after Kashinov goes up against Adrian Marino, who's been kind of upset in plenty of higher-seeded players on his way to the fourth, uh, goes to the tiebreak against Nadal in the first set, and then Nadal takes the next two, 6-2, 6-2. Chapo's going to be facing a red-hot Nadal, but he gave Nadal all he could handle, and I think it was Rome last year in the 1000s, a three-setter. So I think Chapo, at this stage in his career, is fully equipped mentally he's been in the big moments you think about his semis against Djokovic at Wimbledon this past year the Nadal match as well I we're gonna see what kind of character poise and ability to hang in there that built I think this is a very winnable match for him against Nadal and he sh should be on paper the biggest test Nadal has faced that's all I've got for the top half of the draw before we move on to the bottom I've got to know what made you make that face so Third and six around midfield, Patrick Mahomes scrambling for about a 35-yard run here, uh, and the Chiefs are now threatening just getting into the red zone now uh, with a run by McCole Hardman. Oh, man, he just, like Buffalo goes out and gets points early, and he's just that special kind of player who gets them right back and calls that advantage, eh? Exactly. I mean, for those who have the over, you love what you're seeing right now. All right back across the pond and then some to australia the top side of the bottom half of the draw don't have a lot but we're going through the whole list uh, yannick sinner looking to tie his grand slam best an italian often mentioned at, in the same breath as berrettini though a bit behind in development he's had a fairly easy run of it in his draw uh, we'll be facing the Australian Dimenauer, who's seated 32 and had a couple of upsets at this point, or I don't know if upset's the right word, but beaten higher seated players. They're all pretty close in that like 30 to 15 range though. Anyway, so Sim, if Sinner can win that, he'll tie his Grand Slam best in by making it to the quarters where he would face the winner of Stefano Sitsipas and Taylor Fritz uh, should be a good one. And then we'll more on that when we get there. We move on to what Owen mentioned earlier, uh, Andre Rublev, who'd been having a run of it, no tough matches, uh, gets upset in before Chapo's match. I called it the biggest upset of the draw so far. Uh, Silich, the 23rd seeded player, who will be facing Canada's Felix Auger-Aliassime tonight. I personally think that's great news for Felix. Um, you always take the player who got the upset over the player who has a consistently proven higher floor and ceiling. Just likely wasn't at his best against Silich, but hey, I'm already in my words on the Dallas draw, so maybe I'll eat them again there. And then last at the very bottom of the draw, Daniel Medvedev just continues rolling 
in his paradise of unseated players. Um, one set dropped through three rounds against Kyrgios. Uh, no real danger for him. This fourth should be similar. His first real test should come in the quarters where he could be facing Felix again, and which would be a pretty quick run back of their matchup at the ATP Cup that Medvedev won, though Canada took the victory against Team Russia off the back of Chapeau and Felix beating Medvedev in a doubles match later, I think that same day. Uh, it also sets up a potential amazing narrative for Canadian tennis, where we have Chapeau on top getting through Zverev, the highest seeded player on the top half of the draw, and Felix potentially getting through on the bottom, taking out the lowest seeded player of the draw. It's too early to salivate at the thought of Canadians in the Australian Grand Slam finals playing each other, guaranteeing Canada a men's ATP Grand Slam championship so we won't do that here we'll just move along to football fan cave owen handy and off to you yes sir as we speak right now patrick mahomes diving for the pylon ruled a touchdown on the field but we will see if that's reviewed two drives one by each team has taken up 13 minutes of this first quarter so a couple of really really long drives looks like that's a touchdown from here so we're gonna have a seven seven ball game but now I get to rewind the clock here to yesterday on Saturday. Um, like I said, best weekend in, in NFL. And so far, the games have not disappointed. Although if you are a fan of the team hosting a playoff game, you have been disappointed. Three road victories, all on last second field goals this weekend. Really, really, really exciting stuff. So let's start with the first game of the weekend. The Tennessee Titans hosting the Cincinnati Bengals, both one seeds. Tough result, uh, but really, really fun action. This game starts. The crowd is pumped. Derrick Henry comes out of the tunnel, and the first play of the game, Ryan Tannehill throws an interception uh, and, and instantly quiets the crowd. It's huge for the Bengals because now, essentially, they get to start with the ball, both halves, um, and and they, they get, end up getting a field goal out of that. Uh, they stop Tennessee again, get the ball. Uh, Jamar Chase with an exciting broken tackle about a 50 yard run downfield but the Bengals again really only get field goals when they should probably be converting for touchdowns uh but they've done they did a great job really containing Derrick Henry in the first quarter and then second quarter Henry starts to get going um he looked pretty much the same as the normal Derrick Henry but just a couple it, he maybe just looked five percent slower and 5% less physically dominant. And that was how the Bengals were able to keep him from breaking any huge runs that we usually see him have late in the season. Um, really, the story in this game for me is Tennessee's defense and how Cincinnati still managed to hang in there. Now, uh, there was a playoff record in this game. The Titans had nine sacks of Joe Burrow, uh, the most in, in a playoff game or tied for the most. Jeffrey Simmons, I think, had five by himself, and, and Joe Burrow hung in there through it all, managed to complete some tough passes. Uh, Joe Mixon did just enough to provide him the support. It, it really, like, this Bengals team should – the final score was 19-16, to 16, so it wasn't a lot of points scored on both sides, but really no team should ever win if your quarterback's getting sacked nine times the way Burrow was. Um, but then on the other side, it was 
a, a pretty terrible game from Ryan Tannehill and you see the difference between or you see the difference of how important the quarterback position is. You can have the the better team on paper and the Titans overall, their team may have even had a better game than the Bengals, although the Bengals defense probably not getting as much credit as deserved. But Tannehill with three interceptions in the game really cost it for them. Uh, Burrow threw one interception and it seemed like he really had to be perfect in this game because the only interception he threw went right off of the fingertips of his running back popped in the air gets intercepted right off the turf and a really questionable call where uh, Malik Hooker has his hands on the ball as it's touching the ground but because as you can see right here if you're watching the video the ball is cut off by the bottom of the screen they couldn't find a definitive camera angle to see whether or not he had grabbed it just before it touched the ground or at the same time so the call on the field stands as an interception Whereas if he had been in possession at the same time as it touching the ground, it would have been incomplete. Ball stand, the call stands. Um, Tennessee gets a touchdown. Um, they insert Devontae Foreman into the game, who's been great for them all season with Henry injured. And I honestly thought he probably should have seen more looks in this game because his first run essentially is a 50-yard run. Um, but then Tannehill tries to throw an outlet pass, gets picked and intercepted uh, or gets tipped and intercepted by Hilton. Tannehill chases him down, but really it was some backbreaking interceptions from Ryan Tannehill. Um, and, and the Titans just seemed in a malaise almost, like still no urgency, even when they were down in this game. And it led to some pretty poor calls on third and fourth down where they run Henry up the middle. He gets stuffed. Uh, they don't, they don't try anything spectacular. And obviously when you have Derrick Henry, usually you feel safe going up the middle, but the Bengals did a really good job containing the run um, when it was Derrick Henry and keying in on it. And the Titans end up wasting a, a ton of clock near the end. And, and Ryan Tannehill throws a back breaking interception because they were in possession of the ball in a tie game, ready to go down and kick a game winning field goal. He throws the interception with about 30 seconds left, the Bengals get into position. And the final story of this game, Evan McPherson, Florida kicker, drafted in the fifth round this year. He's a rookie. And many people really didn't like the pick at the time for the Bengals. Um, most of the time, you're not drafting kickers or punters because you can just sign them after the draft. There's a lot of other really important positions to fill. But this kid has been lights out all season, warming up on the sidelines. Uh, backup QB Brandon Allen, McPherson walks up to him, says, looks like we're going to the AFC championship game. Walks out on the field, drills the 52-yarder. And, uh, and the Bengals walk off with a huge win. And Joe Burrow in his second season, first season ruined due to an ACL injury, second season on his way to an AFC championship game. Really, really impressive stuff from the number one overall pick uh, from a year ago. And this Bengals team, really, really frisky. And they've turned it into some wins. Their defense is hugely underrated now. Uh, and, and of course, when you got Joe Burrow, anything's possible with this team. And a huge win. And if you're Tennessee, so many things to be proud of this season. Coach Vrabel, up for coach of the year. Uh, you get the one seed, you beat all of these top playoff teams, and then you just can't get it done. And, and just the fact that you don't have an elite quarterback, it rears his ugly head. Um, and it was the basically the difference in this game. 
even though, yeah, and, and that's usually what it's going to be most of the time in the playoffs, except for the game I'm going to move on to now, <laughs> the 49ers and the Green Bay Packers. Uh, really low-scoring game, 23 points total. Um, and the 49ers actually did not score an offensive touchdown in this game. So really, really uh, interesting. And honestly, everyone is killing the Green Bay Packers defense and killing the special teams, but their offense scored a touchdown on the first drive of the game and then had nothing after that. Uh, absolutely nothing. The, the game opened with the Green Bay Packers, everything going right for them. AJ Dillon touchdown, Zadarius Smith with a sack on third down. Um, they're rolling and then Rogers throws a under to Mercedes Lewis and it gets punched out and, and the drive stops and, and the, the turnover happens, but then they get a sack and get the ball back. The refs, the rep, like, obviously, uh, like the Packers forced the fumble when the 49ers got it back, but it was overturned because it wasn't a fumble. So it just seemed like the universe was trying its best to go the opposite way of the Packers, but they were still rolling. And then somehow at halftime, 49ers finally have a good drive. It's still only seven, nothing. Um, but Jimmy Garoppolo scrambling out of the pocket, throws a pick on the one yard line, followed by an Aaron Jones, 60 yard reception, runs it down the Packers thinking they're going to get a field goal, go into the half 10, nothing. And then the field goal gets blocked by San Francisco and special teams. Packers have had the worst special teams in the league all year. And it's not the first time that they get bit, but we'll get to there. Second half. Bad penalties. San Francisco still hasn't scored yet. Kills a drive um, that they were rolling again, but they are able to get a field goal. And then kind of just awful offense both ways. Like Jimmy Garoppolo was really, really poor in this game. It seemed like he wanted to throw an interception about seven or eight times. The only plays that the Niners really were able to run was Debo Samuel or Elijah Mitchell runs. And Debo, like he looked broken by the end of the game. He was getting hit every which way because they were just giving the ball every play or a Greg Kittle slant. Besides that, the 49ers had nothing. But then the other way, Rogers hit Devonte Adams nine times and hit everyone else like a combined three times in this game. Like the Packers really disappointing that they couldn't generate more offense. And a lot of credit goes to the front seven of the 49ers uh, being able to contain a lot of this green Bay offense. And this is the first time in 24 playoff games that Aaron Rodgers was unable to uh, score 20 points. So really wow. impressive by San Francisco. And then we get to, to back to the special teams. Late in the fourth, Green Bay looking to punt. San Francisco not really threatening offensively, so you feel good about giving them a ball back, but the punt is blocked and returned for a touchdown, and the game is tied. And the Packers have this opportunity to, to go down and win it. They can't do it. They have to punt. And then San Francisco, again, slant to Kittle. Just run the ball enough. Debo Samuel, final play, uh, gets eight yards when he needed seven. And Robbie Gould hits the, the game winner from 45. And if you're a Packers fan, this just really, really hurts. You, you, you haven't made it over the hump now in three years when your team, everyone was picking them every year, like have a great, great team. But now you're $40 million over the cap. Everyone's hitting free agency. Devonte Adams, most likely out the door, Aaron Rodgers, who knows, but um, 
yeah, it's a, it's a tough pill to swallow and Aaron Rodgers hasn't said anything, but I mean, for the next five months now, it's all going to be, where's he going to be? Um, yeah. 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 It's going to be the biggest NFL free agency. I guess Brady wasn't that long ago and <laughs> there was a lot less drama going into it with Brady though. It was just, he was kind of like, yeah, I think my time with the Patriots is done. Going to do this Bucks thing and it was like big but like with Aaron Rodgers this has been building yeah. and this is just so could we see <laughs> so could we see Rodgers following in Manning's footsteps and heading to mile high I wouldn't say no as a Broncos fan but I also would like them to draft a, a franchise quarterback well just sprinkle out that thought into the universe and see exactly. what happens yeah yeah, 100%. Okay, today's game. I wanted to lead the show with it because it was so wild, uh, but we'll break it down now. Early on, same thing. Um, just seemed like momentum really swung one way to an extreme level with all of these teams, and the Rams were the team that was able to take advantage of it the most. Cooper Cup and Odell Beckham able to get open in this Tampa Bay secondary who has been injured all season long. Um, and then on the other side, Tampa Bay struggling to run the ball and, and penalties and pressure. The two P's were the big killers in the first half for the Bucs. Um, Tom Brady pressured numerous times by Donald, by Miller, by Leonard Floyd. Uh, and, and a couple of personal fouls really took them out of scoring range and, and killed their drives. Now the score is 21 to 3 um, right before half. And Cam Akers about to run it in for a touchdown, fumbles at the one-yard line. The Bucks get the reception. It kind of prevents this game from truly getting out of hand. And we know that Tom Brady, down 28-3 to in a Super Bowl, has done it before. But no, he couldn't possibly do it again. And it doesn't feel that way. Uh, the Rams stall out. Bucks go back the other way. They stall out. And then the Rams score a touchdown about halfway through the third quarter, making it 27 to three. They missed the extra point, however. And so Brady goes, well, 27, I've already done 28. Let's do this thing. They get a field goal, 27 to six. Rams, Cooper Cup fumbles. Uh, but then Von Miller gets a strip sack. But then Matthew Stafford looking away, trying to change the play. Ball snapped right over his head, goes 30 yards, pick up by the Bucks, uh, and they then gave back possession. Three plays in a row, just madness. The Bucks get a touchdown to Mike Evans, exposing uh, Jalen Ramsey, and, and we're at 20, 27 to, to, to 13. Um, and then they just somehow, 14-point game feels so much closer than before. Uh, Leonard Floyd. I think had three touchdowns or two touchdowns in this game. He had two rushing touchdowns and with 40 seconds left, they get it to him, miss tackle on fourth and one and he runs it in and the game is tied. And all of the internet is breaking right now because somehow Tom Brady, Rob Gronkowski have done it again. <laughs> They've come back from an insurmountable margin and, you know, going to overtime, Tampa Bay is going to win this game if it makes it there, but it doesn't. And Matthew Stafford, who has never had playoff success, stuck on the mediocre Detroit Lions, finally has this moment. 
a crossing route to Cooper Cup gets out of bounds, and then the kicker, the Bucks blitz the slot corner, uh, gets picked up, and Cooper Cup is one on one with a safety, beats him straight down the middle of the field for a thirty yard bomb, and the and the Rams able to clock it with four seconds left, and after uh, Matt Gay had missed an extra point and a field goal earlier in the game, he hits the the thirty yarder. Not not a tough kick, but still a lot of pressure after you've missed. So three game-winning field goals. The Rams take down the Buccaneers and will host the 49ers in a matchup between Sean McVay and Kyle Shanahan, who know each other very, very well. Um, going to be an awesome NFC Championship game. And after this game here between the Bills and the Chiefs, we'll be able to see uh, the AFC Championship game with the Cincinnati Bengals. But really, really awesome football this weekend. And I'm looking forward to finishing out this this last one and previewing uh, the championship games on Thursday. Wow. There's so many things we could title this episode. I'm incredibly <laughs> conflicted. If Kansas-Buffalo ends in a field goal, that might yeah. just be a sign. And yeah. I might have to edit the timing of this episode. Something else, which at least had the magnitude to deserve the title intro lead theme of this episode francis Ngannou versus cyril gone the ufc heavyweight fight that was seemed to be anticipated everywhere i don't know if you came across it at all oh, yeah. but the day of the fight coming home from work heard frat boys talking about it on the street uh, one of my friends who i was baking with today was trying to get laid Saturday night and everyone she was texting, even the dude who's always texting her like, hey, what's up? Was like, I'm watching the fight. Can I come over after? Oh, oh he made that face again. A, sorry, almost a pick six right on the Chiefs starting a drive at the one yard line. Almost a pick six there. Sorry to, to interrupt your flow. <laughs> no, it came at a good time. I've set up the hype for this fight. I don't know if most of the world felt the fight lived up to it. I think it pretty well did. It wasn't an all-time performance. More on that later. But it was a really thrilling, fun, awesome display of mixed martial arts. And it made Dana plenty salty. So love that too. Okay. At the start of the fight, it seemed to be playing out as Vegas thought, as most people thought, Cyril gone simply too freakishly good of a striker for a heavyweight, for even the explosive athletic monster predator in Ganu to hit him. Ganu was able to pressure him, get him moving back against the cage or towards the back of the cage. Looking back, he does get most of his knockouts with his opponents back on the cage and facing Stipe at the apex, which was a smaller cage. Definitely made it a bit easier for Nganu to set Stipe up against the back. Against, or in this octagon, gone a little more space to operate. So even though Francis was getting him behind that first black line, never really back against the cage, he was able to move so casually, so at will. Uh, Nganu landing a couple body shots, but nothing too heavy on the head. It was a pretty close round. I could have seen it either way. Second round, but the biggest win for Cyril was simply not getting tagged because a fighter like Nganu is most dangerous in the first round. In the second round, Cyril really took over. Uh, he stopped getting pushed against the back wall. 
And it was the champion in Ganyu who we saw come out against Stipe to win the belt by not swinging, by picking his shots, not gassing and waiting. And this was still there for Ganyu. The old Francis would have swung wildly at Gan, gassed himself out, and got himself into deep waters very quickly in the fight. This champion in Ganyu was patient. He knew his cardio. He knew how hard Cyril was to hit, and he didn't go throwing wildly. But that patience gave Cyril the space to operate, to start picking up the volume and start dominating the stand-up, and he took the second round fairly dominantly. In the third round, Nganu completely flipped the script on this fight and put in what was so close to such an amazing performance, uh, starting with a freakish Brock Lesnar takedown, catching a kick from Cyril, and picking up the 250-pounder and just manhandling, power-slamming him to the ground. Cyril was able to get back up after Nganu had some suffocating pressure, showing the ground game was there after getting manhandled in the takedown, but Francis was able to get to another double leg and end the round on top. Uh, the dominant, the grappling dominance on display for Francis to take the third round. In the fourth, just the threat of that takedown saw Cyril instantly tone down the striking, and it was suddenly much more even, though a lot of Nganu's ex acceleratory power and explosiveness gone at this point as well after the takedowns and the grappling. But in the clinch, Francis just kind of muscled Cyril to the ground. Uh, he wrapped his arms around him, bear hug, trip, and you saw the strength disparity on display and the takedown defense from Cyril not at top, top mixed martial arts level. A lot of his takedown defense comes from his distance management and the difficulty of fighters getting their hands around him. But someone who's bigger than him, like Nganu, and as we learned, has quite good grappling fundamentals at this point in his MMA career, was able to take Cyril down at will. Um, Cyril was able to get up from these takedowns, so the grappling was there, but just not the takedown defense. In the fifth, though, Cyril got the takedown. Um, Nganu still struggling a bit at distance on the feet, trying to set up that takedown, ends up closing the distance awkwardly, gives Cyril a chance, he takes it. But then from full guard, the mistake of the night goes for a leg lock, rolling onto his back and inviting Nganu to get on top. And once the invitation was offered, uh, Francis accepted without reservation and proceeded to just kind of lay there for the last three minutes, which he hadn't been throwing damaging ground and pound the previous two rounds, which was disappointed, but you kind of hoped he was waiting for the end of the fight to let some of that go. Uh, you saw he really just didn't want to win the top position. It was the route to victory and the lack of activity, the lack of ground and pound, the lack of damage stopped this from being an all-time performance in my eyes. I feel like if Nganu had found that ground and pound finish in the fifth round, this would have been right at the top for me of UFC fights ever, especially with all the drama regarding Nganu's contract, which I'm going to get into in a minute. 
but still to take on this challenger as the underdog in what's probably your last UFC fight ever. Uh, amazing stuff by Nganu, putting the wrestling on display after such wrestling was exactly what stopped him from getting his first title in his first challenge attempt. An amazing chapter in MMA, in the MMA journey of Nganu. The time bomb's gone off a little, if anyone can't tell. Uh, a fantastic fight. For Cyril, on the ground, he didn't do anything stupid other than going for that leg lock, but while on bottom, he handled himself safely, keeping Nganu from having an easy time with a ground and pound or submission. He was able to find get-ups. He was able, even able to take Nganu down. So the ground game's there. It was just the takedown defense where he really showed himself to be not ready. Part of that's definitely game plan, not something he was putting in constant reps in the weeks leading up to this fight. But this is a guy who clearly has the potential to be the number one heavyweight in MMA and probably for quite some time with how safe and damage resistant his style is. But he needs to plug this hole first. Uh, for me right now, the road to number one position in the heavyweight division if Nganu never fights again for Sirogan first goes through Curtis Blades. That's a the fight I'd like to see next for him, honestly, because he's beaten pretty much everyone else around that top level. I don't know who else there is for him, but until he gets that win, he can't be the number one heavyweight in my eyes. Uh, Stipe obviously would be the other matchup as I think about it. We'll get into heavyweight matchmaking later. Um, the internet clickbait suffering salt mining outside of sport drama fan in me can't end this fight recap without talking about Ngannou's contract drama. For over a year now, it's been an issue. Ever since he first tried to get the John Jones fight and the UFC shut it down, that showed more on the UFC or on John Jones's end of the frustration and disappointment. But it was very clearly there for Nganu. And after a true star-making performance win against Stipe, the man wanted to get paid. He knows what boxers get. Like he got six hundred thousand dollars in his contract for this pay-per-view. Um, Fury gets 20 million on a bad one. It's just peanuts compared to what boxing stars make. He's made these grievances public on the UFC and he's threatened to walk after this fight, something no champion has done with the belt, let alone one as big as Nganu. You think about how much money Conor McGregor had to pay the UFC, how much of his purse he had to share in the Floyd Mayweather fight. With the UFC contracts structured as they are currently due to antitrust lawsuits between 2010 and 2016, there's a five-year limit. Nganu signing his contract in 2017 and then having it become active in his first fight January 2018 means 2023 January, Nganu becomes eligible to walk. He's Many, many, many champions have sat for much longer than a year. If it reaches a breaking point, the UFC in a, 
attempt for PR save face will strip Ngannou before January comes. They'll do their absolute best to get him to fight before then. But um, Dana not wrapping the belt around Ngannou as he made his first title defense made it incredibly clear how he feels about the whole situation. And that just made my night. So a really fun night in the UFC all in all. Congratulations to Francis Ngannou. Cyril Gan is not going anywhere. This is the type of fight that is going to make the fighter who was just in his seventh UFC fight. That is insane to be fighting for a title in your seventh fight. Uh, this guy has so much room to grow in terms of the mental and his game. Um, and being already at the top in that position is simply terrifying. Great things to come in the UFC heavyweight division and hopefully great things to come for Francis Ngannou's purse as well. That's going to wrap up this combat corner. Awesome. Awesome. Looking forward to hearing about that uh, drama as it unfolds. Little little Rogers Ngannou, uh, Ngannou watch action as the year goes along. Let's go into some basketball storylines here. And, and really, besides this Toronto game, which we'll talk about in a second, um, the big story out of this weekend is the Grayson Allen-Alex Caruso saga. I don't know, Max, if you've seen the foul in question itself, uh, but a fast break, two-on-one, Caruso goes up for the layup. Al uh, Grayson Allen basically takes him out near his head, hands area with the ball but does so in a very hard way that Caruso goes sideways, lands on his wrist. Um, Allen is, is given a flagrant two and ejected from the game, and he is just coming down with a one-game suspension from the NBA for his act. I think a lot of that comes up due to the news that Alex Caruso will be going under undergoing wrist surgery, so he will be out four to six weeks. Um, that definitely has something to do with, with NBA handing out a suspension because it's not often that we see the NBA handing out suspensions, not, not as right. common as we see in the that NHL. That sounds so soft to me for like the magnitude of how much people are talking about this. Yeah. Like this is almost like Wilson's hit on uh, that Rangers player whose name I can't think of. <laughs> uh, was it Panarin? I think it was Panarin. Yes. Yeah. So we'll... The thing is, though, is we have to look into the history, right? Mm. This is the equivalent of Matt Cook making a dirty hit in the corner. And for some people, you may give them the benefit of the doubt, but Grayson Allen has been making dangerous plays since his freshman year at Duke. Um, it's a track record that's followed him. He's, for the most part, been able to handle himself in the NBA because if you start doing stuff like that, you're going to lose minutes. Um and, and in college, they're a little bit more empowered to, to do more of the dirty stuff just because of it's a shorter rotation in college. And uh, when you're a great player, it, it stands out more. Um, but this followed him into the NBA. He is pretty much universally disapproved and hated by all NBA fan bases. And so when you take out a fan favorite like Alex Caruso with a dangerous play, um, he's going to receive a lot of hate. And all I can say is March 3rd, Milwaukee at Chicago. 
is going to be a barn burner. Um, and we saw the Jokic versus Morris twins kind of fizzle out in terms of like, haven't heard much about that since. And he has played games against the twins one or the other. I think this one's going to have a lot of meaning because it's only a month away. So definitely one to circle on the calendar. Yikes. All right. Yes. Uh, Raptors wizards, um, a huge win for Toronto because it, it directly impacts the play in game uh, implications a huge win for them down the stretch. The identity is there with some mixed results where they grind out everything, but the minutes that they play on all of these guys, it really leads to them losing their legs down the stretch. And they should have won this game handily, but they do blow a 15 point lead. They do miss some shots. A timely timeout by Nick nurse allows them to get kind of one last gasp and push uh, and and they're able to close this one out. But Gary Trent being back is huge to take one or two minutes off of uh, a Pascal or a Fred or an OG because um, those guys have played upwards of 40 minutes a game for the last couple weeks. And then Chris Boucher has really come alive in the last couple weeks. And it always seems like he plays his best when the Raptors are kind of middling or on a bit of a slide. I don't know what it is there, but maybe he stands out as an energy guy when the rest of the team is a little um, stuck in molasses. And so he's been excellent. He's actually started to knock down a couple threes, which has been really big for his game because it allows him to then attack closeouts when people are flying at him in the corner. Um, so Chris Boucher, want to shout out him. He's been a lot better as of late. But in the end, a, a big shot by Fred Van Vliet. Where have we heard that before? And and a lucky bounce and an offensive putback for OG Ananobi. And the Raptors are able to close things out against the Wizards. Uh, and they do play the Charlotte Hornets on Tuesday, which will be another big play-in game scenario. They are chasing Charlotte in the standings. Uh, and it looks like they will be further back of them after tonight because they are getting blown out by Portland right now. That happened last time we played them too this season. Not been a friendly matchup. No, guess not. I guess not. And they were without Damian Lillard as well. Man, that it's, team deserves a whole podcast autopsy. Yeah. yeah. I think it's use of Nurkic. Like when you have a big center like a lot, like a couple of these teams do. This just th that's something the Raptors will have to look at if they are looking to buy at the trade deadline. They have to at least get a serviceable center with size because Ken Birch, like we mentioned last year, solid and and can play that center position and be productive. But when it comes to these true mammoths in the NBA, the Raptors have nothing to deal with those guys. Yeah. All right. That's anyone. Yeah, I know, right? I would, I would love that. Bring JV back. Actually, I don't know what his contract looks like in terms of feasibility, but that's, oh, oh, I think it's manageable for sure. If if you're sending back a Boucher or a Kem Birch or, um, I guess like Svima Kailuk, all those guys, you could add it up to make it work. I'd trade Boucher in a first for you, Valanciunas. I don't know if I'd want to give up on the first, especially if you if we get knocked out of the play-in that you lead to the lottery odds. You may want to let Masai cook with one more kind of top 10, top 14 pick and then see what you can do. Um, but definitely a second. Definitely a second. Uh, yeah, I, 
I think, or you could put a protection on the pick. Yeah. Yeah. If you could protect outside of the lottery, you could do that. Yeah. Like if you, if we got eliminated in the play in and didn't even make it to the playoff, but yeah. Yep. Yep. Definitely a possibility. All right. That does it for basketball. Quick, uh, I guess we'll just do a final round of applause. The Edmonton Oilers getting their first win since December 18th. Virtual round of applause. And the Toronto Maple Leafs not blowing a lead. Virtual yes. round of applause. Getting their win against the New York Islanders. Any thoughts on that before we sign off? I had the third period run. I guess I caught enough of the second to see Riley's beautiful goal. Um, some awesome cross crease passing from the Leafs like fed it through to Brody who couldn't finish and then minute later Riley and Nylander on the same offensive shift get a give and go uh Willie's uh just a stud these days and then third period like the way the Leafs have been blowing leads at this point in the season I, it doesn't have me in panic mode yet because no team is going to play a perfect 82 game season. There's going to be holes. There's going to be struggles. It's how you respond and fix to those things. And what I saw from the Leafs in the third gave me some optimism. They took some penalties. Don't love that, but they killed them off. Well, they did have to spend the last few minutes in their zone of the period. Couldn't get the empty netter to ice it, but they defended pretty well, didn't give up too many scoring. The way they were able to forecheck once when they did have the puck deep in kind of the six, seven to four minute range was really great. Um, just decision making at the five person level, always having multiple players back to challenge, always pushing the back the puck further. So you see the changes in the coaching where the emphasis is for the team and you see the team responding and executing well to that the new york islanders that kind of pesty irksome team that can just pull out that perfect top key to grind away last minute goals without being the most offensively gifted maybe not the best um team to prove you can prevent the late game comebacks again but certainly not the worst yeah, exactly. I think it it was good for them to hit the Islanders at this point. Like you said, not the most offensively gifted team, but that's good to build the confidence, right? So obviously, like not a super feat that you're able to hold a lead against a team like that, but you were able to do it. And so that's the building block, right? The process. And the Islanders totally that team. They have that team blueprint identity to get those last minute goals and just be yeah. so irksome and pesky. Yeah. The most like Bruin similar team I can think of in the East. Yeah. Yeah. I, I do want to shout out Peter Mrazik as well. That's a yes. big win for him to get um, oh in goodness. order to, because he's going to have to play a lot over the next month, two months when, uh, when the Leafs have to catch up on some of these games over the yeah. Olympic period. Yeah. And I, I don't feel like Campbell's played poorly in these like blown leads and losses. He's had to face a barrage of shots and had nice saves, but Oh, they're such a temperamental bunch goalies. I I worry playing too well will affect their minutes. I worry playing um, slightly poorly will give them too much adversity to respond to. I worry their backups playing well and earning more minutes will give them fits. But faith in faith in soup. Yes, faith in soup, baby. Faith in soup. 
Um, we'll probably have uh, the Olympic roster to talk about the next time we speak. Uh, so looking forward to that. I think Eric Stahl, little, little hint there, um, seems like he's going to be announced to be a part of the roster and we'll see what the rest of that looks like. So maybe a little bit more hockey talk on the next podcast, but for this one, that is it. Max is, is ticking away over there. How's that <laughs> uh, Bill's Chiefs game? Any last check-in notes? Uh, still 7-7. A seven, seven. Uh, little okay. bit less action offensively, but the Chiefs are knocking second and goal here from the two. Um, Tyran Matthew out for the game, so a big loss for the Chiefs on the, on the defensive side. And a uh, an attempted shovel pass play that the Chiefs love to do gets broken up there in third and goal, but um yeah maybe we'll maybe we'll talk a little bit on thursday if anything crazy happens but looking forward to the rest of this game and looking forward to the week uh thanks everyone for listening and and we'll keep you updated if we do decide to do a a color cast in the near future i don't think we've explained what color cast is so you'll have to tune into the next episode to hear about that tick 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 Sports Next Door signing out.